Hello everyone, we've got a high performance episode coming to you this week on Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. And in the first segment, Nick DeSena tells us about KTM's new Super Duke Evo. There's a big upgrade in the suspension and electronics departments, and Nick had a chance to ride the bike on the street and on track at Button Willow. In the second segment, I chat with tuner and drag racer Augustine Herrera of Herrera Racing. Suzuki has just launched the third generation Hayabusa, and although Herrera hasn't yet had a chance to work with the new bike, his results with the first two generations of the model are astonishing. His son currently has the fastest nitrous Hayabusa in the country, and it puts out around 600 horsepower and ran a 6.6 second standing quarter at 210 miles an hour. Holy moly. I hope you enjoy this episode. We're actually talking about the updated version of the Super Duke, um, I guess a supplemental to the 1290 Super Duke R line, which is the 2022 KTM 1290 Super Duke R Evo. And the Evo really just stands for um, the version that uses WP semi-active suspension. Uh, that's the core change for this particular model. So you can see it as sort of the icing on the cake to the, the heavyweight Super Duke family. And um, yeah, wow, that's, yeah that's, 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 that's what a big we're going to be talking that's, about today. That's a big update. I mean, semi-active suspension. Yeah. So, so you know, on paper, it, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot going on because, you know, the announcement and the press release outlines just two changes. Of course, the, the semi-active suspension has a whole lot to talk about within, you know, that, uh, that mindset. And the other mechanical change that they did this year for the Evo was reduce the throttle throw uh, by seven degrees. And what I mean by that is the, the range at which it takes to get to wide open throttle. So essentially it's just a, a shorter throw throttle, uh, not quite a quick turn, but going in that direction. Uh, so that, that's a nice little change when you're on the racetrack. But yeah, most of this talk, I think will be centered on the suspension um, of the, you know, relatively fresh 1290 Super Duke R platform, which if we go back a couple of years to 2020, uh, the bike was heavily revised. Uh, you know, if we're really splitting hairs, we can't quite call it an all new motorcycle, but they did so much to that bike in 2020 that I'm, I'm pretty much calling it a new bike when you're comparing it to uh, the first and second gen uh, Super Duke R's. You know, the, they added significant stiffness throughout the chassis, uh, changed the geometry, updated the riding position a bit, updated electronics, um, and also did some engine work as well. You know, it's still pumping out a pretty, pretty intense 180 horsepower and 103 foot-pounds of torque, um, you know, out of that, that V-twin. So that's definitely nothing to sneeze at. <laughs> No, it was it was it was never short on power at all. I mean, it was uh, ridiculously fast. So, uh, but the the uh, the suspension that is very interesting. So yeah. I'm eager to hear about what semi-active means and exactly how that works. With WP being the main suspension partner for KTM, in fact, the only suspension partner for KTM. Um, <laughs> 
it's uh actually owned it, by ktm yeah yeah if i if i remember correctly <laughs> right. um it's it, they're taking a, a little bit of a different path to semi-active suspension for a street motorcycle than say the olens or uh, uh Sachs or marzoki counterparts uh so their interface looks a little bit different uh, it's very in line with the interfaces that you'll see on other KTM models. And truth be told, the semi-active uh, WP suspension is derived from the Super Adventure models. So what we're talking about today will already be familiar to owners of those motorcycles because it's quite relative in that regard. But, uh, you know, just to dig into it, what you're dealing with is a, you know, technically fully adjustable uh, uh, fork and shock. Of course, you know, you have semi-active damping, which changes as you ride, and it really does change the riding experience. It's a, it's a palpable and discernible change between each mode that's presented. So if you were to just get the Evo with no options, nothing else, you would have three standard damping modes, which include comfort, street, and sport. Now, those are all pretty self-explanatory. Comfort is the softest damping mode, and it really does make the Super Duke kind of couch-like. Um, I wouldn't recommend it for spirited riding, but it's, it's actually one of those settings where if I'm riding to the canyons and, you know, just kind of slogging on the freeway and stuff like that, the, the damping is... It's just nice and supple, and it really hides pretty much any pothole or anything like that, even when I was actively aiming for them. So that's that's something to consider. And Ooh, that's impressive. Okay. Yeah, it's it's actually quite cool. You can just you know flip that into the mode uh, when you're just commuting home or commuting to work, whatever. Um, nice. And then street kind of takes things up a notch. Uh, you know, still still good for a nice little kind of spirited wick in the canyons, nothing too crazy, but you get a lot more chassis feedback in that sense. You'll feel a lot more through the front ends, and you also feel a lot more uh, from, the, from the rear ends and through the saddle and things like that. So you're just getting a lot more feedback through the chassis. Um, and obviously, that's something that, you know, any rider can appreciate if they're riding in that mindset. Uh, I often left it in the street mode when just riding around town. Uh, comfort wasn't necessarily too soft, but street's a, a happy medium in a lot of ways. And then there's sport, uh, which for riding in the canyons is pretty great. You know, it's not overly stiff. You know, we're still in that riding on the road mindset where you don't want something that's racetrack stiff because it really just kind of rattles your teeth out and becomes uncomfortable and not enjoyable but what i really enjoyed about the sports setting especially in the canyons that we have around us in southern california is just the braking support that you're able to get um you know how weight transfer is initiated in those slightly stiffer uh damping settings so as you accelerate and you let that huge v-twin engine you know lay down all of its torque it really just controls the uh, uh you know the weight transfer in a much a much more effective manner than say comfort would for example 
because comfort is focused on just delivering the most comfortable ride. In this case, it's really just kind of makes the chassis a little bit more taut, controls everything and really keeps that, uh, that trellis frame on the straight and narrow. And that's something that's very cool. In sport mode, if you're accelerating hard out of a corner, how much does it make or allow the rear to really squat down, which is not terribly desirable? I mean, how much does it control the rear and that sort of thing in sport mode? Yeah, yeah. So that that's, you know, I can definitely get into that as well. You know, compared to, we'll, we'll look at each end of this standard spectrum, right? So in sport okay. mode, all right, okay. It um, it definitely allows some squat and anti squat um, uh, to get in the mix. You know, you do want some squat when you're accelerating, but too much, and it's really just gonna unload the front, and you're gonna create understeer, and it's gonna wheelie and all that, whatever. But um, in sport mode, it really just settles things down nicely and keeps it at a very reasonable amount of damping in the front and rear to where you get plenty of feedback through the chassis. And it's still not to that racetrack level that you might um, set the bike up for when you're at the track and then go around on the street and go, eh, that's a little too, too far. Uh, in comfort, you will get a lot more of that weight transfer that I was mentioning earlier. But um, yeah, that's one of the main discernible differences. You know, you have more support under braking and then under acceleration as well. You're getting less squat. It's keeping that bike nice and planted and preventing it from just, you know, excessively squatting in the rear. Um, and that's with these standard modes of comfort, street, and sport. Now, additionally, um, there are, are a couple other modes that we have to play with as well and another feature, and that is tied to the Suspension Pro package. Um, yeah, so before we get too ahead of ourselves, you know, we'll explain the Suspension Pro and, and features like that, and then we'll talk about all of the optional features in a little, in a little bit, because they are packaged in one, one just sort of grab and go from the dealership uh, uh, purchase. But there's a lot to kind of dissect in that in that realm. So okay. we'll get to All that. Right. But now, if you get the suspension pro option, that unlocks a, a really cool feature about the shock in particular, and also three other uh, damping modes. So the three damping modes are track, advanced, and auto. Track, pretty self-explanatory. That's a very stiff racetrack um, inspired. Uh, semi-active damping mode. <clears throat> Advanced allows you to adjust things on a scale of one to eight, and it doesn't break down nomenclature and actually separate the damping circuits the way that an Olin system would. So in this case, it just has a hardness or softness going from a scale of one to eight. So instead of being able to adjust rebound and damping individually, you just have that one to eight scale. So that's a little bit dumbed down in comparison to the Olin's uh, uh, interface and your adjustability in terms of just really narrowing down your settings. But at the same time, it's a lot easier to play with. I mean, I was more, uh, I was more sort of attracted to just flicking through the settings because there was less to do and I had less options. So, you know, you don't get the same amount of control as what 
a lot of the uh, Olin's offerings are on, you know, the various flagship super nakeds and super bikes and things like that. But, you know, whatever. So that's more of just WP trying to narrow the focus. At least that's how I interpret it. And all of this can be, all of this can be changed on the fly, presumably. Yes. Yes. So you're riding, so you can just dial in more or less damping literally corner by corner if you felt like it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's actually one of the coolest updates that they did in 2020 is just with the switch control on the left side. Looks a little bit intimidating in terms of its actual button layout, but it's one of those things where you can, you can do it really easily because it is a, 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 it's a substantially sized switch gear. So diving into those settings, doing it really quick, and then changing things and actually understanding how the, the changes uh, affect the ride. I mean, I would just on our, our local, some of our local roads, I would switch settings and then turn around, do another little lap and then switch settings again do another little lap and just see the differences. And I could do that, you know, within a couple minutes, essentially, you know, so that that's really easy. If I were to get off the bike and then take out the little toolkit and turn, it's <laughs> just like, it, yeah. that turns into right. a 45 minute process. So, you know, the fact that I can do this in a couple minutes is pretty awesome. And then the final uh, optional mode in the suspension pro package is auto, which is a mode that per KTM's description detects the, the riding style and the rider inputs um, that are occurring when you're going down the road or the racetrack. Um, so that mode in particular, just to kind of harp on that one for a second, it's, it's a pretty interesting mode because you can feel it adjusting as you become more aggressive or less aggressive with your inputs. If I had it, on on the racetrack and just rolling out of pit lane and kind of getting onto the racetrack and blending the bike would sort of be at a you know pretty average you know uh, damping characteristic and then as you start really opening the throttle and hitting the brakes hard things like that you can feel the bike actively changing um, and to be clear it's not actively changing from corner to corner it's just changing depending on the scenario that you happen to put it in. Uh, the one observation that's tied to that, that I will say, and what I'm impressed with most out of the WP stuff and the, the Olin stuff as well, is if you think back to the early days of semi-active suspension, uh, one of the complaints is that the damping rates could change in a really unexpected way. Um, so, thinking back to the early iterations of the r1m uh, which was one of the first super bikes to use active suspension um, you know the complaint from that was depending on what you were doing corner by corner it could be pretty inconsistent those complaints have they haven't completely gone away right but they're right they're much less pronounced and that's because these systems have become exponentially better in just the course of you know five six years um and i will say if you're pushing a motorcycle to a certain skill level if you're at an extremely advanced skill level club racing uh, professional racing yes you will want to go into a fixed suspension mode or just use fixed suspension because you want that absolute consistency 
But for everyone that's not Jeremy McWilliams, KTM factory tester, (laughs) (laughs) it works really well. And it works amazing on the street. I mean, semi-active suspension is just one of the best advents on the street. But really, okay. Uh, in my opinion, I because of the because of the variable settings that you're you're riding in, you know, it, having that ability to not only change your bike or the bike changing with the abilities or both, um, I think that's a huge advantage over over mechanical suspension that you have to set and then set within a window of your particular riding. So someone that really lives in the canyons and does a lot of aggressive sport riding in the canyons probably will have different suspension settings from someone that just rides around to and fro from work. Um, at least I hope. Yeah, we without doubt, of course. Yeah. <laughs> or someone that lives at the racetrack. And right. those three settings don't really work with each other. In this case, we can just flip a switch and we're good to go. Um, now to really dial in on the, the experience of each mode. Um, actually back up we need to talk about one other little feature so the the other really cool feature uh with the suspension pro package is the um i'll define it as ride height adjustment uh so it's a an automatic preload auto leveling per the ktm nomenclature and basically to explain that to our audience is it has three standard settings so it weighs what is in the saddle and what's uh you know the the laden weight of the motorcycle essentially and it's adjusting the sag depending on rider weight luggage uh passengers etc etc um and you have three settings within that that window you have low standard and high this is so this is preload it's adjusting exactly and it's automatically adjusting it too and the coolest thing about this, I don't know why I think this is awesome, but it is. So everyone will just need to agree with me here. But <laughs> it's, you can actively feel it adjusting. It's probably the closest thing I've gotten to riding a MotoGP <laughs> bike. And when they sit down on the grid and do practice starts and you can watch the bike lower down and squat down. So they really get all that drive off the, off the, the practice start or you know the, the, uh, the starting grid. <clears throat> But at any rate, this actually changes the geometry pretty significantly. Um, so it, it adjusts with a range of roughly, I think it's 0.8 inches or something like that. Um, so that's, that's quite a bit if you're thinking about preload range and how that affects uh, ride height. Around for a long time. I mean, obviously, you know, BMWs, we've had you know, the single helmet, the two helmets and the two helmets with luggage. And so is, is this basically the same thing or, or is it not so much preload, but actually ride height adjusting? It, in this case, it, it's actually both because it's, it's actively or its purpose in this case on the KTM is it's actively adjusting the geometry. Um, in the lowest setting, it is the most relaxed geometry. It's actually uh, unloading the front and if you wanted to you know really measure it you'd actually be adding rake and everything like that functionally i think it's doing the same job but um ktm is looking at this from a a geometry and handling 
uh, perspective instead of just a, you know, we're going to be carrying passengers and we need to accommodate for that. This is right. Okay. So Ron, just, just accommodating for weight and, you know, just spring strength. They're actually talking about, you know, chassis specification changes. Yeah. You know, think about adjusting your suspension on the KTM Super Duke R Evo in kind of two frames. You have your damping on one side and all of those modes, and then your, your, uh, your more advanced modes, if you want to take things to a more particular level, that's your damping. And then on the shock side, you have your okay. three preload height uh, adjustments of low standard and high. Um, so again, you don't have as much to play with in, with some of the other systems, um, but whatever that's here nor there. <laughs> so, um, in the low setting, that's the most relaxed uh, geometry. It actually lowers the seat height like, considerably. I mean, you can actively feel it lowering, which is a really unique sensation. Oh, cool. Actually not dissimilar to the Harley Pan America. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't work in the same context where when you're coming to a stop, it lowers. But I was sitting there on the, on the grid at the racetrack playing with all the settings and I put it in low. And then I felt the bike lower down significantly. Suddenly the heels <laughs> of my boots could get on the ground. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, wow. That's cool. Yeah. And then yeah, very cool. And, okay. um, and that really does change the handling characteristics of the bike, you know, in combination with your camping settings. And then you can go to a standard height, which is essentially splitting the difference between uh, low and high. So it's a pretty pretty new makes it like pretty neutral handling in a lot of respects and then auto high which is uh the most aggressive uh preload setting cranks up the uh, preload significantly and adds a lot of weight to the front end um basically you're just you're just a that's something that would really come into use on the racetrack so on the street typically i would use uh the sport damping with auto standard or auto high um, when I'm in the canyons. And that gave me a motorcycle that handled really well. That's something that I, when I think back to the, the launch we did in 2020 for the uh, heavily revisioned uh, KTM Super Dukar, I would say on par, if, if not better in a lot of respects in terms of handling, you know, suspension compliance, comfort, and grip that you're getting out of all that. Now with the auto high setting, it really kind of stink bugs the back end a little bit, or that, at least that's what it feels like. And um, <laughs> okay. toss it into the, the track damping mode, which is the, the stiffest preset mode that KTM offers. And then I, you know, went, went and did a couple, you know, a handful of laps at the racetrack in that mode in, in the first session. And it's really going to come down to skill level um, and what you want out of the bike at that point. Um, in terms of what I wanted out of, out of the bike and just, you know, you're dealing with so much torque, the track damping wasn't quite where I wanted it. I felt like I needed a little bit more support under acceleration, uh, not necessarily under braking, actually. So just I needed a, a stiffer fork. Um, uh, or sorry, not a stiff fork, a stiffer shock in, in a lot of respects. So okay. went to the advanced mode, 
which gave me a lot more freedom and just started kind of clicking things up incrementally and really fine tuning stuff. And at the racetrack, then I was able to really dial that bike in, stiffen it up to a, or stiffen it, stiffen it up from a, you know, a pretty good middle kind of baseline to something that, that really got the bike pointed in a nice direction. Um, you know, the thing with the KTM in comparison to a lot of the other super nakeds is it's got that monstrous V Schwinn engine. That thing is creating a silly amount of torque. So, you know, riding the KTM is just a different experience from all those other bikes, these 210 V4, the street fighter V4, the, uh, speed triple, uh, 1200, you know, the BMW, this thing is real aggressive. So getting that suspension, right definitely helps because you, know, you can spin up the rear and things get a little wiggly, yeah. but that's really just the engine doing its thing. Um, but overall, you know, the, the Evo suspension, uh, just, it just allows a lot more, uh, I, I would say experimentation with settings because I just, every, every session I would come in and change something and then go and test it out. And then, do it again. And then maybe by my fourth session, I had the bike probably about 85, 90% of where I wanted it. And then the rest of the day was just kind of seeing what would happen if I went here or there. Um, and when I'm dealing with mechanical suspension, it takes me a lot longer to dial it in. Might be, you know, a track day or two, like on my personal race bikes. It takes a, it took a, a handful of outings to like really get it dialed in in the right direction but here no you can just start playing with stuff and it's all good so that's what i really appreciate about it. well then you get faster then you know you can just stiffen things up you don't have to just sort of deal with it or ride around it you know that 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 sort of freedom i think will appeal to a, lo a lot of a lot of buyers you know there there is something to be said for mechanical suspension it is going to give you with well, consistency yeah in terms of consistency it will be the absolute it is not going to change unless you really dig into the, the, the finer minutia of suspension where oil weights and, and heat and things like that. So, you know, the general rule of thumb is that over the course of a, a session or a race or whatever, a shock and fork, the characteristics will change slightly because of heat, but that's really splitting hairs. So don't, don't get caught up in that. But in terms of absolute consistency, yes. Mechanical suspension wins every time. Um, and yeah, there, there's plenty of adjustment with the, the WP uh, semi-aptus suspension. And I think they've done a really fine job in terms of supplementing the 1290 Super Duke R because that's already just a wicked super naked there's really nothing like it in the class at the moment it's just everything in that class is so competitive right now and pretty pretty well defined from its its uh main rival and the super duke offers one of the one of the most memorable experiences i mean the the v-twin again to keep harping on it that thing is an absolute beast. Hence why this motorcycle is called the beast. But it's also relatively easy to ride. I mean, it is a user-friendly kind of power. I mean, they've done a really done a fine job with it. 
Yeah, and they've they've done a lot of refinements uh, over the years as well with it. I mean, the the shifting improved in 2020 by a huge margin, as well as the uh, quick shifter up and down the any auto blipper function. So that was a huge improvement. The fueling was uh, significantly improved in 2020, and again carries over to this model. And uh, all of those riding modes were just vastly superior to previous iterations. So the throttle response was much better. Um, the throttle connection is uh, greatly improved again. And the rideability of the twin on the street is something that I really do appreciate about this motorcycle. You know, despite its sort of hooligan nature, and it is the, you know, KTM's flagship wheelie machine, we'll say. Right. Um, it's an incredibly streetable motorcycle it's again nothing about its numbers really point to the fact that it's a bike that you can easily live with but at low rpm it can get like very low rpm it can get a little lumpy like any big v-twin will but it's really smooth off the bottom you can just put it in a taller gear and just lug along and be totally okay yeah so true it's it's very deceptive. I I found. Yeah. Obviously, I haven't ridden this Evo, but the previous iterations were unbelievable. Yeah. And I've you know, I've ridden this thing on on the tight streets, you know, around Ascari in Spain, and I've ridden it around you know Los Sail MotoGP track in Qatar. Yeah. You know, and everywhere in between, and it just yeah, it's a lovely machine. I, you get a ton of feedback from the front. Um, it's just. It's a really, really great motorcycle. I guess my sort of the only question, you know, the elephant in the room is is uh, what has this done to the price? I mean, has this made the bike dramatically more expensive? Not a huge amount, surprisingly. Really? Okay. With the price increase from the bike we rode in 2020, that came in at $18,699. Now, interestingly, the Evo version with the electronic suspension is only a thousand dollars more, so nineteen thousand five hundred ninety-nine dollars. So, a thousand dollars for fully adjustable semi-active suspension—that's a pretty good deal, honestly. Your usual complaint about, you know, KTM that you have to pay extra to unlock the pro mode. <laughs> is it, does that appear? Does that does that apply here? It does. And okay. the caveat with KTM is that, yes, you have to pay for those extras. Um, and yes, that is a bit irksome. But they've sort of wised up and just made it a really easy purchase. Now, everything, if, if you go in and do all of that stuff, everything is going to fall under the tech pack. So you're at the dealership, you're buying your Super Duke Devo. It's a great day. And then you want things like the up-down quick shifter. You want anti-wheelie off. You want track mode and performance mode. You also want engine map selection. You want adjustable TC, launch control. You want MSR, um, which is the uh, electronic supplement to a mechanical slipper clutch. And then you also want suspension pro modes um, and all of the bells and whistles. Um, you want the tech pack. This is the happy meal then. Exactly. Okay, yes. all right. You want the happy meal with all the options. All right. Exactly. Okay. So 
you go and buy the the tech pack, which also comes with the track pack. So that's everything that I already listed and all the bells and whistles. And that's something like another 800 bucks or something like that from the dealership. So all of the options are there in one, you know, one shebang. So there you go. Okay, cool. So to kind of talk about the electronics, yes, you do have your standard ride modes of uh, rain, street, and sport. And those are preset riding modes. So you can't adjust TC, wheelie control, yada, yada, yada. Now there's still, uh, you know, you're still getting the, the full breadth of the, the six axis IMU and all of that good stuff. So even at a baseline, those preset riding modes are, you know, more, more than capable, especially in a street setting. In fact, the, one of the first sessions I did on the racetrack when we did the 2020 and, you know, with the Evo that I was at the racetrack on the other day, I started out in the sport mode just because it was about, I don't know, 51 degrees and nine in the morning. So I, I wanted to take it easy. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, okay. th those are more than happy. But if you want to really start dialing things in, you need to switch over to the track mode, which allows you to adjust your throttle maps. Uh, you turn wheelie control on and off switch your ABS modes as well um, and adjust anything else in terms of your, your electronics. And then you're able to adjust TC on the fly with the handy dandy little switch gear on your left-hand side with a plus and minus. So you can adjust TC if you feel the tire spinning up more or anything like that. Um, it's actually really cool. And it's something that I first experienced on a Tuono. Uh, that was one of the first motor motorcycles that I saw it on in that configuration. Um, sure. Okay. At any rate. Um, so that's, that's the electronics in a nutshell track just unlocks everything and you can adjust everything and really dial in the bike. Now there's also the performance mode, which is essentially the same thing as the track mode in terms of adjustability. Okay. However, it has the caveat where you're able to run some of the more street oriented functions such as um, KTM my ride navigation and cruise control. So in the performance mode, those two functions are still active and you can use them in track mode. It's uh, completely disabled. Uh, the other thing I should note about track mode is it disables motor slip regulation or MSR as you'll see it abbreviated frequently. Um, and that's because KTM assumes that if you're in track mode, you're at the race track. Therefore, you want the absolute consistency in terms of engine braking. And MSR makes engine braking variable. And it, it can be applicable in terms of, uh, you know, whether you're riding on the street or not, how you might want to um, use that, that feature. Um, you know, talking about the, the ABS modes, you only have two. You have the road and the supermoto ABS. So road is your standard six-axis IMU uh, ABS mode. It's actually quite sporty, more than sporty for the racetrack, depending on your skill level. Uh, more than adequate for the road. Um, you know, if you're riding it on the racetrack, again, you might feel that it's a little bit conservative, but that's where the supermoto mode comes in, which actually um, disables ABS in the rear. 
and also disables IMU. So it essentially turns it into Euro 5 compliant dummy ABS. So you can trail break as deep as your uh, confidence or ambition will allow. I rode most of the day in, in, in Supermoto ABS just because I, it gave me a, a leash that you know I could easily hang myself with. So more than enough. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's, it's definitely um, something that I enjoyed. Plus, if you're kind of the hooligan nature, which you probably are because you're riding a Super Duke, you don't have ABS in the rear. You can just start sliding around and doing whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, the, the motor slip regulation function is something that we touched on in the 2020 review. It can feel a little bit strange at first. Um, if you're riding on the street, I, I fully understand why it's there. I mean, you're dealing with huge amounts of engine braking from this V-twin and it does have a, an excellent slipper clutch, mechanical slipper clutch installed in it. Um, this is just a supplement. And essentially what it does is just opens the throttle bodies slightly and feeds fuel into the engine to reduce engine braking. Um, now, the first time you feel it, you might be trailing into a corner and you release the brakes and mentally you're thinking, oh, I'm going to get X amount of engine braking and the bike will continue to slow. But because of motor slip regulation, the engine braking is reduced significantly. And so it can, it can feel a little bit awkward in, in that sense. And I, I think it's really just going to come down to personal preference. For my sake, I'm not a fan of it. And so I would disable it in the racetrack setting, especially. These things, unless you're really familiar with it, it can sort of catch you out a little. Exactly. And so at the racetrack, I would say put it in track mode, make sure an MSR is disabled in track mode. So that's no issue. Um, and even in some of the other modes, I, I would probably disable it as well. But um, on the street, depending on your skill level, depending on what you're doing, you can also get that same sensation. And at first, it just feels like the bike's pushing. But, uh, well, it's not. It's, you're just not getting as much engine braking. So, yeah, there's that aspect of it. Um, and I actually understand why, why KTM feels the need to have that supplemental uh, function there. I mean, the, the slipper clutch does its absolute best and it does an excellent job as well. Um, but, you know, it's still a huge amount of engine braking for a slipper clutch to manage. So I get it. And really this sort of electronic supplement is becoming more and more common on other high performance motorcycles. It's commonplace on all of the super bikes at the moment. Uh, no, let me correct that. It's commonplace on the V4, the Panigale V4 and the, the Aprilia RS V4 for sure. Um, but still it, 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 I get it. The TC is excellent. I, I went ahead and bought myself a little extra grip through some Bridgestone Battleaxe Racing R11s. So this is the DOT uh, race tire. Not quite a slick, but it is a DOT uh, race tire. And for the racetrack exclusive, because you need to use these tires with tire warmers, and they're, they're just, they don't require as much... Um, sort of nitpicking in terms of, uh, you know, 
uh, PSI management and suspension settings and things like that, they have a, a little bit wider window of operation in, in terms of, uh, in comparison to a, uh, a slick. Leaning on those for a little bit of just a buffer zone on the racetrack. You know, that said, the TC is awesome. I, I played around with it a lot in 2020 when we were at the racetrack in Portimao, and I played around with it again when we were at Buttonwillow most recently. And, you know, per KTM's instructions, levels one through three are reserved for slicks. Um, and I 100%, 100% back that statement from KTM. Uh, when you put it in those lower settings, that can get real exciting. Uh, you know, the bike is still there to, to catch you, but you're, you're putting all that, that V-twin might down. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's moving. And, but it never too far. That's the thing that I really love about the Super Duke chassis. You know, as crazy as this thing is, it can get loose and kind of just, you know, it feels like this rowdy experience, but it never actually steps out all that far. It never really lets go. Yeah, no, it's, it's very predictable. And I would imagine that the the new uh, slightly quicker turning throttle probably helps with throttle management too. Yeah, yeah. So one, you're a lot more aggressive, obviously, because you're going to wide open throttle a little bit faster. Yeah, but it's going to be, it's going to be quicker reacting. Yeah, so I ended up settling in on TC level five of nine. Um, and when you get, you go from nine, that's incredibly aggressive. That's almost a rain setting, but it, it's a nice progressive step down to level one. So that's something that's really nice. And when it cuts power, um, it, it's not really doing it in a very- It's not overly aggressive then, it's just- Yeah, exactly. It's predictable. Let, let's describe it as this, as in the Panigale V4 and RSV4, I would say are my benchmarks for electronics. And in so far as I would only know they're working when I would look at the video sometimes and I would go, oh, TC was turning on. I had no idea. <laughs> so um, in this case, the KTM is, is definitely stepping in that realm. There are corners where I would be like, you know, I wonder if I'm getting all the power. And then I would look down and just kind of in my periphery, I really don't advise anyone to sit there and stare at their dash while they're on a racetrack. But, uh, you know, um, the way it, it just curbs the power subtly, just to reel it in, just that, that right amount is a pretty huge achievement for an engine like this. Yeah. A naked bike in comparison to a super sport or a super bike of V-twin with huge amounts of torque these are all things that are huge challenges for manufacturers to overcome and really make a very refined and smooth riding experience in an aggressive setting. And they've done that with the TC. I think the TC is pretty incredible. Um, so not to like keep harping on the TC, but it's awesome. And then in combination with that, we have the Bridgestone uh, Battle X Racing R11s that we used on the racetrack. And just the grip is not quite as, as much as they're slick, but a lot more than their street tire. And that said, this bike does come with the um, Bridgestone Battle X uh, S22, which is a wonderful street tire. I mean, more than sporty. I could have easily gone and ripped that track day on those standard tires. I just wanted to uh, get a little bit more grip because we're dealing with some chilly weather. So 
just wanted that extra buffer and uh, Bridgestone came through on that one in spades. Um, so, so yeah, and that, that's kind of it on the electronics. Of course you have wheelie control just on or off. There's no levels to mess with. You either want a wheelie or you don't. And um, you know, that said, I actually rode probably 50, 50 at the racetrack with wheelie control on and off. Um, if you turn it off, yes, you will get that extra little sniff of drive. Um, and wheeling on the Super Duke, as terrible as I am at wheelies, the way it lifts up and just the way the torque is delivered, how tractable the engine is, despite the fact that it is a very quick revving V-twin, this is all something that if you have your wits about you, you can manage it. Um, you know, just kind of cover the rear brake or modulate the throttle. It doesn't just snap up on you. But, uh, you know, the, the KTM is a wheeling machine. That's why... That's why wheelie control is on or off, baby. So <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Wheelie control can can really help. I mean, I felt that on actually on the R1, you know, at Eastern Creek a few years ago, you know, in the maximum setting, it was horrible. You know, you'd, you'd go to maximum, maximum throttle coming onto the straight and the front wheel would come up a bit and it would immediately chop it down. And so you'd end up sort of porpoising your way onto the straight which was awful yeah um and obviously without wheelie control you're then having to mitigate the throttle yourself but in setting two it was absolutely perfect um whatever reason yamaha sort of got it right on, on that one yeah and i was able to come on the throttle hard and the front would come up just by a couple of inches it would just float above the tarmac and the wheelie control would would hold the power so you didn't have to play with the throttle and I could just come on really hard onto the throttle and it would just hold the front and it was exactly what wheelie control is designed for it was really good but 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 that can be that's a relatively rare experience in my in my experience in recent years things like the well the BMWs the KTMs the the Yamaha um uh, the Kawasaki as well essentially most manufacturers have worked out wheelie control to a very a very fine-tuned level and if we kind of cycle back to the ktm with its just on or off settings even with it on i would come out of the final corner at uh button willow get onto the straight just hammer the throttle hold it wide open actively lock it wide open and yeah you'll get a probably an inch or two of hover just off the tarmac you're getting just tons of good drive and yeah if you turn off wheelie control it is just that extra little sniff but overall i ended up just being happier and you know not because i'm not really a wheelie guy i didn't feel like i was missing out on much um by by keeping it on so just uh you know i felt that it was better in that setting oddly enough when we were at portamao I did turn off wheelie control and that's where I felt more most comfortable with the difference between button willow and portamao is that portamao has is extremely dynamic there's lots of opportunities for any motorcycle of any kind to pick up the front ends when you're crusting over a lot of those massive elevation changes whereas button willow is no there's there's about two opportunities and that's it yeah and and portamao if you know anything about uh that racetrack and where um you know it's a, a common racetrack for world superbike and MotoGP. 
lot of times you'll hear it's a bit of a struggle on the electronic front for those writers. Now, I'm not comparing myself to any of those writers or our situation to their writers, but <laughs> okay. these super dynamic racetracks that have huge elevation changes can really throw electronics for a loop. Um, and often those riders will end up decreasing their intervention. Um, so Portimao is one of those racetracks that, that does kind of uh, tease that, that sort of solution out in a lot of people. Um, sure. But yeah, in back home at Button Willow, I left it on and uh, I was, it was good. I just felt more comfortable with it. Just allowed me to focus on the drive instead of having to modulate the throttle or drag the rear brake or anything like that. Um, and, but again, even when the front end does come up, it's, you can tell where it's going to go based on your throttle position. So it's not this super unexpected thing. Awesome. Sounds like you really enjoyed the bike. Sounds really good. Yeah. I mean, the, the Super Duke is just, it is one of the most unique bikes in the, in the class at the moment in a class of just absolutely unique motorcycles. Um, I would also say it's probably the most lighthearted of a, of a, an incredibly serious class as well. I mean, we're talking about this thing is going up against the likes of the Street Fighter V4, the Tuono V4, the Triumph Speed Triple 1200, the BMW S1000R. I mean, all of these bikes are very pointed, aggressive motorcycles, but you know, they're, they're, they're still naked bikes and they're still going to lead most of their lives on the street, but they're more than racetrack capable and by any definition. And the Super Duke kind of plays on the, I would say, the more playful end. You know, it is the, the hooligan of the bunch. Um, it might not be as, as racetrack pointed as the others and super bike inspired as the Tuono and V4, but the way it handles just gets on the edge of the tire beautifully. Yeah, I can get, you know, that torque can kind of start pushing things around a little bit, really, really make those tires work. But it's all kind of part of the fun on the Super Duke. And that's what I love about that bike. It just has a, a more uh, carefree attitude than some of the other bikes. And on top of the fact that it's one of the most comfortable motorcycles in the class in terms of its seating and riding position. Um, it's not too aggressive. You're you're totally happy to just kind of plod around on it in the streets or commute on it and do whatever. And it'll do it despite the fact that it's a huge V-twin. Um, and then it's also got Stylema calipers, which are the best in the business at the moment. And, uh, you know, you have all the electronics. Yeah, you got to pay, you know, a few hundred bucks for them. But at the end of the day, KTM makes it easy and just packages everything in one go. So whatever. But um yeah, yeah, you know, the Super Duke still impresses and <laughs> that motor is just an absolute blast. I mean, you can't ride this bike and come off the street or the racetrack just sort of giggling because really nothing is like it right now. It's just, just such a, a characterful machine. Um, so yeah, yes, this isn't a huge departure from the 2020 that reviewed that we reviewed, but the Evo is just that little icing on the cake, silver lining, the tinsel on the Christmas tree, however you want to word it. It's just that, that extra little step. And yeah, for an extra grand, well, not a bad deal. So yeah, definitely well worth it. 
All right. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It sounds great. I'm, I'm very happy that KTM have done this. It sounds like a very logical step and, and pretty typically they've executed it absolutely beautifully. In this second segment, I chat with tuner and drag racer, Augustine Herrera of Herrera Racing. Suzuki has just launched the third generation Hayabusa, and although Herrera hasn't yet had a chance to work with the new bike, his results with the first two generations of the model are astonishing. His son currently has the fastest nitrous Hayabusa in the country, and it puts out around 600 horsepower and ran a 6.6 second standing quarter at 210 miles an hour. Holy moly. I hope you enjoy this episode. The, the, the reason for me wanting to talk to you was just because you and your son, I believe, are really have spent a lot of time tuning Suzuki Hayabusa motorcycles and really have, have kind of gone, taken that motor really to kind of the ultimate limit, I think. Um, can you tell me a little bit about sort of what you've done with the Hayabusa in the past? Um, yeah, we have, um, I mean, we build them, tune them, um, you know, obviously race them, um, you know, it's basically just a love of two wheels, you know, it's not necessarily specific Hayabusa's or Harley's or, you know, Kawasaki's or whatever. It, it's just a love for two wheels, you know, that's, that's, uh, I mean, I've been riding since I was two, um, I rode a Indian, 50 when I was that was the first two-wheeled anything I ever rode my father put me on a motorcycle before he ever put me on a bicycle um I put my son on a motorcycle when he was three um kind of the same aspect so like I said it's, it's, it's just a love for two wheels it's not necessarily anything uh you know directed anything in particular direction sure sure when did you sort of uh start tuning your first hayabusa was it sort of the generation one or, or was it with the second generation one well i started drag racing in 1990 i would say like 91 92 okay um and we were doing with the gsxr the oil cooled's you know, the original 86, 87s, um, we were doing it with those. Um, then obviously the Hayabusa was in existence. Uh, then I started riding a friend of mine's Hayabusa, Walter Sprout. I rode his bike a couple times and then I bought my own. Um, so we started with the Gen 1s basically with the Hayabusa, but, you know, basically it goes back to where I started with the oil cooled, um, doing a little street racing, doing a little drag racing at the local racetracks. Um, just, you know, just kind of in that aspect. Um, I've never been a Suzuki guy, honestly, growing up riding dirt bikes. I was Honda, you know, riding Yamahas. Um, you know, then we started riding dirt bikes later on and, and riding KTMs. You know, I was never, you know, like I said, I've never been a hundred percent, 
you know, Suzuki guy, you know, I'm not going to say it's, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, there's just, I, it's just, I think this is where the passion led, you know? Right. Right. And so, so obviously the, the, the first generation of Hayabusa came out and what was the first sort of stage that you did? I mean, do you, I, I mean, I know nothing about tuning these bikes. All I know is that there's been a couple of decades of it. Um, so was your first stage to bore it out or, um, or, or go do, do something more exotic than that? Um, basically a lot of the, for drag racing applications, um, there's some clutch mods you can do to them. You know, the little, little black clutch thing that they have, you get rid of it. Um, you can, uh, you know, the first gen, there was some small mods that you did, you know, you put two intake cams in them. They made about 10 more horsepower. Um, you know, the, obviously the emissions, you got rid of those. Sure. The air box was a little restricted. So you opened up the air box. Um, so, you know, that just little stuff. I mean, you just learned over the years, just a little tricks of the trade. Right. Um, you know, and I mean, I didn't kind of learn them on my own. I actually had friends that already did it. So they kind of directed me in the right same direction of what to do uh, right off the bat, you know, so um, because obviously the Hayabusa has been around since 99. And, you know, when I got into this, it was probably 2000 six or seven maybe you know with the Hayabusa you know with the Hayabusa so 2001 they upgraded the fuel injection they did a little better uh upgrades uh where they had what they called somebody um boost my smith and there's another guy I can't think of his name at the moment but they hacked into the computer and they were able to tune them through the factory ECU and you know kind of mess with them and get a little more power and, um, you know, play with timing and, you know, fuel adjustment instead of your typical power commander or your bazaz box or, you know, your typical, uh, you know, just your fuel additors type setup. So, so did you, were you starting to win at that point or, you know, with, with what you were riding? Um, yeah, I mean, we were um, in 2009, I won the national championship on a 2005 Hayabusa. It was my first Hayabusa that I purchased of my own. Um, nice. Which we, which, which was a part of a summit series uh, for bracket racing and drag racing type setup. Um, I ran it uh, all year. I mean, I ran it for a few years. We actually had a little motor that was in it that was punched out. It was a, what they call it, 1397, which was 84 millimeter pistons, which they come stock with 81s. Um, it had a port and polished head with camshafts in it. Um, later on, when I did purchase a dyno, I had a partner that we, we had a, a rear wheel dyno. The thing made 230 horsepower on race gas which was mr12 um and the bike the best et we got out of the bike was an 812 and that was with my son riding it i went 819 on it but naturally my son's about 20 to 30 pounds lighter than i was at the time it's a little <laughs> different now i mean nowadays i'm getting a little older so obviously it's getting I'm, you know age age plays into that role so um <laughs> okay 
but you know it, it was a very consistent motorcycle like i said i i I was the very first one to win the national championship on the West Coast in Division Seven because what it is is in the Summit Series you've got seven divisions in NHRA. You got Division One, Two, Three. You obviously got seven. So and it starts in New York and it's divided up across across the, the state. Um, and Division Seven is obviously all the way in the West Coast. Okay. Um, and division six and seven, they don't allow you to, well, they, at the time, now they do. Um, recently in the past few years, they've changed it. But back when I did it, they didn't allow you to use the Christmas tree. There's two different types of Christmas trees that we use on drag strip. It's called pro tree and it's called a sportsman tree, which a sportsman tree is a five tenths tree, which each bulb comes on at five tenths of a second. There's three yellow amber bulbs that count down before it gets to the green light. That's okay. a sportsman tree. So there's three of them. Each one comes on for five tenths of a second. Okay. On the West Coast, Division Six and Seven, we only allowed a pro tree, which was what they call a four tenths pro tree, which all three lights come on for four tenths of a second. Then you got time to react before the green light comes on okay well when you go to this race in pomona california at the winter or winston finals it's not the winston finals i'm sorry i'm, I'm old school so it's it's <laughs> i don't know what they call it anymore but it is it's the last race of the year for nhra okay at pomona um when you go to that race they take each winner from each class whether it's the motorcycle, each summit sportsman class, which is motorcycle, there's a pro class and there's a sportsman class and there's an, for cars and, and dragsters too as well. Um, when I did that, but they changed the Christmas tree to a five-tenths sportsman tree and that's all there is. Does that like throw off your timing at all? It must, I would think. A little bit, but you're allowed to use what they call a delay box. Okay. Which you put the delay box on your, your motorcycle and basically what it does, it's got a timer in it. So when the first bulb flashes, you can react off the first bulb and then you put delay time into the timer and then it counts down for you, and then it reacts when it's all done, when the timer's all done. So okay. it's kind of up to the to the rider or driver to set the right time to react when the green light comes on. Um, and that's the delay box. You know, it's kind of a preset time. You can adjust it yourself. Okay. So they allow you to put that on there for the race. And I did install that on my motorcycle. And like I said, we ended up, we tested a couple of races or a couple of times out, a couple of races, because okay. the last race for our, our thing is I believe in like October. So you got about a month before the first race or before the summit race in, okay. in Pomona. So I tested for a roughly a month. And we go into the first race, 
in Pomona and it was a lot of fun. I mean, but it is, it's very, I would say there's a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> I'll bet. You know, because you're, you're in front of a, a national stage, you're in front of, you know, tons of fans, you're in front of, you know, people that are, you know, on TV and I mean, you're, you, it's just a big stage, like I said, and it's, you've got to perform, you know, right now, <laughs> right. you don't have no time to prepare, you don't have, all your preparing is done prior to getting there, you're, you don't, so, I mean, I got to admit, it was my year. I mean, my year, I did nothing wrong. I mean, I raced, I, I won everything I could win. Um, you know, it's just one of those years. Must've been a huge confidence booster, I should think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and then when you're the only one that does it out of division seven, and I'm still the only one that's ever done it, um, since they've been doing it. And, uh, you know, I mean, that to me just is, I love it, you know, because, everybody I've raced with all my friends or enemies or whatever you want to call them competitors. <laughs> um, you know, they're tr still trying to this day, trying to go after it. Um, my brother-in-law that I helped and I also got into drag racing. Um, you know, he's been there and it participated, uh, I believe it's three different times, you know, and, and hasn't accomplished it, hasn't won the race. But he's won everything else. I mean, he's a great racer. He's a great competitor. Um, you know, he's beat me a million times. I mean, I beat him. You know, it's uh -huh. gone back and forth. I mean, you know, but it, it just, you've got to be able to deal with the pressure. you got to deal with the situation. you got to, you know, it's just one of those things. You just, you know, you got to be ready for that moment. Right. So getting back to the bike, mm -hmm. do you do anything? I'm sure you do a lot of, lot of stuff to the cycle parts as well. Um, you're sort of, you know, extending the swing arm and, you know, doing all kinds of things to try and help you get all this power to the ground. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, most of the time on average, you'll stretch them about eight to 10 inches, um, depending on the rider weight, depending on how much power you want to go. Um, you know, eight to 10 inches was the normal. Okay. Nowadays, you know, 10 to 15 is about normal, um, on the East where we're at now, um, on the West coast. I mean, the thing is funny is you, now that I live here in Indiana, it is a little different. Um, racing on the, on the East coast is definitely different. Tracks are definitely different. You know, the prep, the weather, um, you know, it is definitely learning experience. Um, but the track prep can it take a longer swing arm because you got to understand the longer you get it, obviously the less weight there is on the back tire. Um, sure. It, it keeps the front end on the ground, but it also creates the fact of there's less weight because all the weight that you, you build these bikes. And, you know, when me and my son build these bikes, we focus on, all the weight on the front end because we don't run a wheelie bar like a pro stock motorcycle right. or a, a bracket bike will do they you know we call them sissy bars but that's just you know i mean that's that's nothing against who uses them <laughs> right that's just it's just a, you know that's just, just a slang you know, expression you know? sure sure correct exactly i mean but you know what for consistency for bracket racing for when you got to run a consistent number like bracket racing or index racing when you got to run that number time and time and time again, you know what? 
there's nothing wrong with a bike with a with a wheelie bar and a 10 inch right. tire. Okay. Um, because you want to you want a motorcycle to do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, and repeat, you know, consistency. That's the name of the game when it comes to bracket racing. When it comes to index okay. racing, um, so there's nothing wrong with it. Like I said, I, there's you know there's there's as Harry would say it, there's a butt for every seat. <laughs> you know, you know that's just the thing. You know, I grew up heads up racing that's always been my passion my son has fallen into that same thing you know i love to build the fastest stuff we can build be the first one to the finish line i don't care what it takes <laughs> that's awesome so having you know sort of won everything that you could win what was this like 2007 2008 something like that 2009 was the year i won the, the national championship Okay. I got really close to going again in 2010. I won my class. I won everything I could win to right before I could go, but I just come up a little short. Um, you know, it was just one of those things. Uh, you know, it just wasn't my day. You know, it's right. sure. one, sure. one thing about drag racing. If it's your day, you can, you can do nothing wrong if it's your day. <laughs> unfortunately i mean i've seen guys win without even racing you know i mean i've seen guys have red light after red light or you know somebody break every pass i mean you know like i said if it's your day to win it's your day to win just, uh, <laughs> i know. think that i think that applies to a lot in life but but there must have after this there must have come a point where you were like you you obviously felt there was more potential to come from the Hayabusa and that there was more you could get from it. So so what was your sort of your next stage in development where you said, you know, what, let's step it up a bit. Well, in 2009, a friend of mine, um, Rob Nierby, Nierber, um, came to me. He wanted to run Pro Street, which is a big heads up, no bar class. In, uh, and it, they run it a lot back east, back here. Um, he's a bigger gentleman. So obviously we call him big Rob for a reason. Um, he owned <laughs> right. a couple of bikes and so he asked me to ride it and it was a nitrous Hayabusa, um, nitrous fed. Um, so I started riding it and, um, you know, my son, obviously he was still a little young then. So he, he was always involved in everything we did, um, but right. he also wanted to uh, be more involved in that as well. So we ran that for a year or so. Um, I crashed Rob's bike in 2000, at the end of 2009 in Rockingham, uh, Dragway. I crashed his bike. Um, we had some issues in the finish line. Uh, basically, the nitrous got stuck on. So the bike continued to accelerate. And when I basically put the brakes on, the front tire was very light, very, you know, very, very lack of traction. So it just washed out and basically I slid on my butt at about 180 miles an hour. <laughs> right. You know, once we figured that whole problem out, you know, we kind of took it over. But the hard part about that whole deal was, is I rode the bike, Rob owned it and somebody else, a friend of Rob's built it and set it up 
and oh okay after i crashed it i kind of told rob at that point i me i want control of the motorcycle you know i want to be able to build it i want to know what's going on before i swing my leg over it you know i need to know what's going on with that thing i mean it's 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 going too fast for you know because we did go 740s i believe at the time um when the record was like 727 low sevens in pro street at the time in 2009 um so you know at that point i was you know i kind of put up put down my foot and said you know i want a little more control of what we're doing right um and that was kind of our first nitrous experience um was me and my son took the program over um learned a little bit about nitrous on motorcycles um granted you know the history of my family goes back to the 50s and 60s um okay. you know my grandfather had drag race cars that my father and his brothers ran you know back in the 50s and 60s when there was a gas double a gas and all that other fun stuff so okay. i've grown up in a drag racing family you know so this right. is kind of uh I'm, we'll say the second generation, my son's the third. And the funny thing is, is now my daughter does it as well. You know, she drives, <laughs> drives a dragster, which is, you know, she drives like a super comp dragster. So, so, I mean, it, it's just the drag racing is in our family. I mean, it's not, it's never left. That's set, that's set deep in your DNA. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard for, you know, family members and, you know, spouses and so on and so forth to understand it, but you know, it's gone on, you know, I've heard the stories from my father for decades, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> right. my dad, his brother street raced and did whatever. And then, you know, obviously my grandpa basically put, put his foot down and said, you know, if you guys want to do this, we need to do this legally and safely, not, you know, so dangerously, you know, so that's when the drag racing came about within the family, you know, so cool so was this so was this nitrous kit was this something that you developed or you you continued to sort of evolve um i mean obviously you you, you i mean you don't want a nitrous kit sticking wide open when you're at wide open throttle again so did you make sort of come up with some adaptions to help with that well we just upgraded the electronics um okay all right in 2009 ish 10 you know in that area people were coming out with better electronics. Right. A guy named Sebastian from Next Level, uh, he actually came up with the nitrous controller, which actually ran, worked really well. Um, we ended up purchasing a bunch of new electronics, new ignition systems um, to control it because the box that we were using, I won't say it was antiquated, but it was, it had its issues. Um, right. and that's what we, that's what we did find out was the problem was where it came from. And so we went ahead and upgraded the whole motorcycle and fixed all that stuff. We actually got the bike to work really well. Okay. What, what sort of horsepower were you putting out at that point? Would you say on nitrous? We're roughly in the 500 horsepower range, 400 to 500 horsepower range. We never really dynoed it. Never really got a, a legitimate number. Wow. Um, but knowing from what I know today, because we do do it now, um, you know, I'm going to say we're in the four to 500 range. Um, wow. 
you know, granted, it's no different than when we built my son's bike now, you know. Okay. To this day, I mean, some people could say I'm lying, but I really, I don't know of another nitrous Hayabusa. Now it's Hayabusa, not GS, not 1000. I'm talking about a Hayabusa. All right. I don't know of another Hayabusa that's any quicker or any faster than we've ever been. My son's been 660 at 210 in the quarter mile. Holy mackerel. 6.6 seconds in a standing quarter. Yes. And on nitrous oxide. Oh. You know, and and that's and that's putting out between five and six hundred horsepower. I'm gonna say it's closer to six, you know, maybe five <laughs> between five and six, absolutely. Um oh. so I'm going to say it's the fastest Hayabusa in the country um, <laughs> because I don't know of any other nit nitrous Hayabusa in the country that's been faster or, or quicker in the, in the country. Wow. Um, wow. You know, so, and we've worked very hard at it. My son's worked very hard at it. Oh, you know, um, he put his blood, sweat and tears in that thing. It was a five-year project when he built the bike. Um, it was his first Hayabusa. I bought it for him. I gave it to him. He started building it. Um, and don't get me wrong. It got rebuilt probably three or four times because it went from taking fuel injection off it to putting carburetors on it. And then we upgraded it and put what they call a Motec system on it, which is used in Indy cars, which is used in, you know, very of the high, you know, highest end of, fuel injection systems sure um we put that on there because like i said it went through its stages um as far as a learning curve uh, you know learning how to use the motec learning how to use all this stuff you know so like i said it took five years to really bring this bike out um and in the first time out with the bike in 2014 he ran it and he ended up winning a race, um, was his first uh, national championship he won, um, which, you know, obviously is very proud of him yeah. uh, to do that. But, you know, that was his first time out with it. He got to ride it. And, you know, we tested a little bit before that. But that was basically not with nitrous. That was just all motor. We didn't really push the nitrous thing until later uh, before we came out here. Uh, to run pro street because that was his goal right his goal was to run pro street and this is all still with the with the i don't want to say stock but this is all still with the suzuki engine i mean you're not using like a billet motor and yeah well it's a suzuki engine that we board out a little bit we do a little head work we do crankshafts you know basically just you know i guess you would say as as most people say punch it out you know or whatever make it right. you know make it bigger um, sure. you know, and we've done little stuff and learned little stuff. Um, and we've, we've progressed over the years, um, with better ECUs, you know, better, uh, management systems. Uh, we've changed the bike a few times, um, sure. you know, since then, you know, granted a nitrous bike in this class in the pro street class, um, if you could look up the stats and you can look up history, we, we seem crazy to try to run a nitrous bike. <laughs> well, yeah, I'd say that. Well, because a nitrous bike is, 
I mean, you look at the record, the records, turbo bikes make six, 700 horsepower plus, you know, especially now since everybody's figured out how to use menthol or alcohol, whatever you, however everyone wants to put it, you know, it's made the, the world, I come from a car era as well. Um, and we use menthol in, in turbocharged cars and um, I've always wanted to use alcohol on a turbocharger, and then everybody says you can't do it, can't do it, can't do it. But the funny thing is, is motorcycle industry is, to me, seems to be behind the times. Um, a okay. little bit. I mean, they just they're playing catch up. You know, I mean, you know, they, right. you know, the car industry does one thing, and then all of a sudden, you know, okay, well now the car does it, or the bikes do it, like five years later, they don't. It, it seems weird. I mean, it, um, but being in this in the industry of both, um, it creates a, a, I guess, a different thing. I, I guess I, right. I open my eyes to a wider, a wider horizon. I guess you would say, because it's a combustion engine. I mean, whether it's four cylinders, whether it's eight cylinders, whether it's twelve or who cares? I mean, you know, it doesn't matter to me. Right. I mean, it, it's it's the same thing. But just the fact that the Suzuki, you know, bottom end, I mean, the crankshaft and, the, you know, the cases and all of that stuff can take that level of increase in horsepower. To me, as a as a guy who, you know, I'm not an expert, but that sounds pretty impressive to me. Did you have to do anything to, to any of these parts to sort of strengthen them up? I mean, you're running a stock crankshaft. I'm sure you're not running stock pistons. I mean, how can you put that much power through a motor? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> we upgrade the pistons. I mean, that's pretty common. I mean, pistons, rods, you know, that's pretty common um, in just about anything you do. Um, you know, you know, okay. that's a that's a common fact. Um, right. But crankshafts, I mean, the reason why we changed the crankshaft is turbocharged wise, they actually use a stock crank. Kind of funny. Um, they use a stock bore size. I mean, they, they, but that's what they like. I mean, that's just, I, I don't know why, but that's, I mean, and it did it back in the oil cool days because the oil cool days, I had turbocharged, you know, GSXR 1100s back then. They loved to be stock size. Huh, interesting. Why? I don't know, but <laughs> that's just what they did. I mean, they weren't stock pistons, obviously, but they were, you know, forged aluminum and, you know, billet stuff and stuff like that. You upgraded that kind of parts. Um, but even in the Hayabusa, but with like going to nitrous, you know, it kind of goes hand and fist with the same in, in like a car industry. I mean, you look at a, you look at car stuff and, you know, a turbocharged car can be 400 inches, 500 inches, um, where a nitrous motor is 900 inches. Okay. You know, and, and that's the same, same aspect that we got here is in a BUSA, we can make 700 horsepower with a turbocharged, you know, stock bore. You put a two millimeter crank like a Gen 2 comes with. And you can make 700 horsepower, you know, obviously some good head work, some good cams. Holy moly, 700 horsepower. Oh yeah. And then you take a nitrous motor, which we make it over 1600 CCs from 
Abusa. The difference is in nitrous application or just we'll say naturally aspirated application, you need CCs, you need area, you need to put more oxygen, to put more air, to put more nitrous. You need all that to make power. There's no replacement for displacement. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay. yeah. All right. But with a turbocharger, like a friend of mine told me, all the turbo does is puts air in it and pushes air out. That's all it does. So it doesn't matter if it's how big it is. You know, it doesn't right. care. Right. Right. That's true. Yeah. You can run enough PSI through it, through the turbo. So so at what time, what point did you decide, okay, then it's time to step it up again and let's go turbocharging? Well, that's something that I, I refuse to do with my son's bike. Um, we are in the process of building a turbo pro street bike at the at the process, which is my bike. So you haven't yet raced a turbocharged Hayabusa? We have some that we play with. We don't, we've never stepped in the pro street class. Okay. I, I've been kind of an outcast. I've made my son kind of an outcast with nitrous <laughs> stuff because okay. I don't want to give up on it because to me, everybody does it with a turbo and it's monkey see monkey do. Okay. And I don't, I, I've been raised so different as far as that goes. I mean, if you tell me I can't do it, don't get me wrong. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to do it regardless. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, so. Okay. So you stuck, so you stuck with nitrous more as a, just an F you to everyone as much as anything else. Though. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay, I mean, I and, and back in, uh, I'd have to ask my son to be sure on the year, but see another guy had a nitrous Busa. He went 683 or something. Okay. And like in 2018, we destroyed that record. We, you know, we decided, you know, we were going after that. Um, and we never gave up, you know. Um, and, my, and to this day, we never gave up. Um, you know, like I've told you. So what's the fastest that you actually ran it then? We have been 660 at 210. Okay. Uh, my son has. I haven't personally. My son has. Right. Um, and our goal is to go 650s, 640s. You know, I mean, that's our goal wow. because the turbos go, the turbos run 650s, 640s pretty regularly. Um, so that's our goal. And, you know, we spend the winters and we spend all year long trying to find, you know, that little bit, you know. You know, just trying to find everything out of what we can find. Sure. You know, and right now we've we're trying to make the motor a little bigger um, to take more nitrous, um, change the combo. You know, maybe if you know if we raise the compression or lower the compression, it might make a difference. You know, we we don't know. Nobody, you know, see that's the funny thing about nitrous is. You can ask 10 people, you get 10 answers. <laughs> right. You know, nobody actually knows and says, this is the way you need to do it. Or this is, you know, this is, you know, God's gift. Or, you know, this is, you right. know, this is gospel. You know, nobody knows. You know, that's the thing with nitrous, not even the car world in any world. You know, when you find it, that's the thing. You know, I mean, right. then everybody loves you to death. You know, I mean, <laughs> You know, we run a lot of grudge bikes with as well, you know, but there are a lot of them are all night. They do a lot of nitrous stuff and grudge racing because they only race eighth mile instead of quarter mile. 
Oh, okay. So Nitrous loves court eighth mile because it's quick and over easy, you know, because you can turbos, you know, seem to take a little bit to get to build up because if you look at the difference, I mean, I wish I could show you some like ETs and, and, and compares, but like we can run, we run 210 out at a quarter mile where a turbo bike will run 220 to 230. And that's just because of lag and just building the pressure and that kind of stuff? Correct. You know, well, but they make 700 horsepower as well. So right. when they get to the eighth, when they get to the half track, then they add more power. You know, then they can use their 700 horsepower. Sure. See, up to the, up to the half track, they can't use all that power. They have to control it. Right. Where we get to the eighth mile, which is half track, we get there, we're out of power. You know, our, our nitrous is all on. And, you know, I mean, we're just kind of along for the ride. Okay. Uh, you know, because a turbo, um, I mean, I don't know if you ever ridden a turbo bike. Uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, of course. Okay. But did you, did you realize when you ride it, it's like, uh, I call it an energizer bunny rabbit because it, it, it keeps going. You know, I mean, you know, the, the, sure. the, the, from the boost, it just keeps, you know, it keeps adding and adding and adding. Just keeps mul multiplying up. Yeah, for sure. If you add a hundred horsepower, you add a hundred horsepower and you're done. You know, there's, it, that's all right. it does. You know, it's, okay. you spray it in there, you get that nice, good little pull. And then, you know, I'm not saying it stops pulling, but it just kind of goes flat. It doesn't keep it just kind of tails off a bit, sure. Correct, exactly. Sure. Whereas a whereas a turbo, of course, the impeller is is driven by the exhaust, so Correct. it's all it's all multiplying on itself. Correct. You know, I mean, so yeah, that stands to reason. That's why you have to have a wastegate. Right. Have you ever had to do anything with the Hayabusa clutch? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, we run an MTC slider or an MTC Gen Two, which is like we run on the Harley. Um, okay. We run those. Um, we do an aftermarket clutch, which is it's kind of a lockup clutch. I mean, it has uh, centrifugal arms that controlled by RPM. Um, okay. So we mess with that and weight and uh, you know, it's it, you know, it's all the little stuff that you got to mess with. You know, so um, factory clutches. You know, like I said earlier, there is some mods, something Suzuki, we had to address for drag racing purposes, um, makes it better. You put a little more spring, you know, and you get rid of that, uh, that, I don't know what they call it, but it's a, a, like a slipper clutch type setup that they put in the Hayabusa. Um, but we get rid of that. So, and manually use a clutch, you know, manually springs and heavier springs. So makes it a lot more controllable, I guess you would say. Yeah with your hand so yeah but yeah uh there's a lot of little things you know that all that little stuff adds up you know yeah but got to take together one one horsepower goes to another so you know <laughs> the weak find that you find the weak links you know as we go on you know i mean what's what's the weakest part of the you know that what's next you know it's you know it just moves you know you put one strong part and then you find two weak parts and then it just goes on and on of that yeah so what what's sort of the next stage i mean this is obviously is still a gen 2 hayabusa i know you've told me that you haven't yet had a chance to try the the gen 3 um 
but I guess it's probably just a matter of time until you till you get a Gen three bike and start playing around with that. Yeah, um, you know, hopefully I can get somebody, a customer, somebody to buy one, and I can play with it. You know, I mean, I'm sure it's a great bike. I'm not, you know, I don't doubt it's not a great bike. Yeah. It's got a, it's got a hell of a platform. I mean, yeah. look how long it's been around. I mean, they've they basically built it in 1999, and they've just tweaked and twisted it a little bit for how many years i mean you know it's, it's you know and i mean it's a wonderful platform and you know even the gsxr i mean it's just a wonderful platform for sure okay so so if uh, if somebody's listening and they're they're thinking that they want to get a bit more power out of their hayabusa is there a place that you'd recommend that they start i mean presumably they could they could give you guys a call and and you work on stuff oh absolutely yeah they could call us um you know i mean it depends on what they want to do. You know, that's the, that's the hard part is you got to kind of know your direction, you know, where you want to, your goals, I would say, I won't say direction. I'll say goals, you know, how fast you want to go or, or right. You know, what you're trying to do, you know, cause a lot of times we get customers that, you know, you know, they, Oh, I want nitrous, but Oh, I want a motor and Oh, I want, you know, but you, sometimes you can't have both worlds, you know, right. because, when I build these motors, you got to kind of build it to take the nitrous or you kind of got to build it to be a strong, you know, all motorbike or, or naturally aspirated. Or if you want to do turbocharge, you know, um, you know, there's a ton of turbo kits and ton of turbo systems out there. You know, there's first level, there's second level, there's, you know, out of control level but it comes with money, you know I mean? And, and that's the other problem is, is you got to determine how deep are your pockets, you know I mean? It's, it's how fast you want to go is how deep are your pockets, you know, I mean, for sure. Because that's with anything in any of this, in this world, you know I mean? That's yeah. just how it goes. That's it. So. Yep. Yep. Speed costs is how fast do you want to go? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you very much. If somebody wanted to get hold of you, how, how best would they do that? Easiest way is either uh, like Facebook. We have a Herrera Racing page on Facebook. We also have a website called Herrera Racing. Okay. Um, they can get a hold of us there. All right. Absolutely fascinating. I really appreciate your time, Augustine. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Okay. Bye bye.